From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. To keep unmasking the scheme to control our Supreme Court, a scheme that is now poised to destroy a woman's right to make her own reproductive health choices and to smash foundational Supreme Court precedent to get there. It's almost boring. Every time something anti-democratic, anti-freedom happens, we keep finding the fingerprints of the white Christian nationalist movement, the previous administration, growing anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, the theocratic-leaning Supreme Court, and, of course, the likelihood of Roe v. Wade getting reversed. Ben Lorber at Political Research Associates has dedicated years to tracking and reporting on the corrosive influence of white Christian nationalism on our democracy, and he'll be with us to share his observations. It changed in 1947, and the court said, you know, we think Jefferson screwed it up. Separation, he said, meant the government couldn't stop it. We think that it should mean that the church can't get involved in public stuff. And so at that point in time, we're now at the point where Congress shall make no law now means that a kid can't say the word God at a graduation, which is a stupid parsing of the Constitution and First Amendment. Christian nationalism wouldn't even be such a threat if the constitutional wall of separation between church and state hadn't been eroded so methodically in recent decades. Historian Stephen K. Green has just published an important new book titled Separating Church and State, A History. And he'll be back with us to analyze how we got here and what options remain going forward. Every Christian believes the Bible or else they're not even really a Christian. If you believe that, anyone who is not heterosexual should die, correct? Absolutely, of course. That's what the Bible says. When it comes to LGBT issues and organized religion in this country, there's a stark disconnect between the stubborn conventional wisdom and the facts. A majority of Americans belonging to almost every faith tradition supports equality and inclusion. But the loudest religious right voices continued to claim the opposite. A new national campaign to turn the truth into action is called Faith for Pride, and we'll get details from Interfaith Alliance Director of Field and Organizing, Maureen O'Leary. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and trying to understand each other. Religion News Service reports that an LGBTQI plus Muslim group, Queer Crescent, has launched the largest survey of LGBTQI plus Muslims in the United States. With the goal of quantifying the needs of this invisible and often at-risk community, the survey is set to coincide with the observance of Pride Month in June. Meanwhile, the anti-gay cohort of United Methodists, who broke away earlier this month over the issue, even as the denomination as a whole staunchly refuses to move toward any meaningful inclusivity for LGBTQI plus Methodists, has hit a roadblock. The Judicial Council ruled this week that there are ways to do this kind of thing, involving the General Conference, and that for now, the conservatives comprising the breakaway regional network of churches continues to be part of the denomination, like it or not. And new findings from the Pew Research Center confirm yet again that a solid majority of Americans supports at least qualified access to abortion, and that's regardless of their religious background. The only group deviating from that is white evangelicals. Overall, though, it's interesting to note that the numbers today almost exactly match Pew's findings from 1995, after diverging wildly at times during the intervening quarter century. And RNS reports that Americans, even evangelicals, stand ready to assist friends and family members who require abortion services, even if they themselves personally oppose and want to ban the procedure. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. 
If you've made a donation this week, please know how grateful we are for that. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. Ben Lorber is a busy research analyst at Political Research Associates who has written extensively about the corrosive white nationalist influence on our politics and on religion in this country and beyond. Not surprisingly, the Christian white nationalist right is immensely energized by the hope of Roe v. Wade being reversed by the Supreme Court. With a look at this and other currents feeding this dangerous ideology, I'm happy to be joined by Ben Lorber. Ben, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. It's not surprising to have Christian supremacists dancing on the anticipated grave of Roe, but how does this fit in with their broader agenda? So I monitor um, white nationalist groups and some Christian nationalist groups in the U.S. And you know the, the white nationalist group that I follow the most closely, which is also in many ways, the Christian nationalist group is called the America First Graper Movement. Um, and they are a white nationalist group led by a 23-year-old young man named Nick Fuentes. They're a mostly very young movement. Um, they made headlines earlier this year when they held a conference where Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar spoke alongside other uh, um, elected officials um, and the audience of around uh, 1,000 mostly young conservative men were chanting Putin, Putin, you know, the, the, their leader, Nick Fuentes, praised Adolf Hitler. I mean, this is a hardcore white nationalist group that believes um, in, in that, like, that white people are being, you know, replaced by minorities in the group. They're explicitly anti-Semitic. Um, you know, and basically, you know, they are allying with with broader Christian nationalist groups right now because they basically want to see the U.S. turn into a fundamentalist Christian theocracy where straight white men basically rule over everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so they are very excited about the Supreme Court's uh, um, anticipated uh, gunning of Roe v. Wade Mm -hmm. because it fits in with their broader agenda of, you know, just really awful supremacy and dominance over everyone who's not straight white. And now, Ben, how would the loss of abortion in at least half the states empower their vision? This group um, and many like them really hold to a male supremacist worldview in which, you know, women or anybody with a uterus should not have um, have rights over their own body. I mean, there was a very disturbing video that that circulated on 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 Sunday, I believe, of one of these gripers um, at a counter protest in New York. Um, he was praying the rosary in front of a church where where pro-choice protesters had had gathered, um, and video was captured of him heckling the protesters saying, not your body, not your choice, my choice, um, you're going to have my baby. And so I think this encapsulates the kind of mm-hmm. horrific vision of just, you know, outright male dominance they, they, uh, they envision. And this is also for many uh, of these white nationalists, specifically, it's tied to the conspiracy that, you know, the, that societal elites who they ultimately believe are Jewish elites mm-hmm. are kind of pushing abortion on white people um, um, yeah. as part of what they call white, white genocide. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, so they, and they're trying to, to build alliances with mainstream Republican figures or mainstream MAGA figures, at least like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar to kind of influence mainstream politics, to, you know, to head in there even more disturbing white Christian theocratic vision. You know, white Christian nationalism can sound like a broad slur, but uh, you identify adherents 
to the principles covered by the label among political candidates, uh, faith organizers, and others. Could, could you offer a definition that would help define who belongs under this umbrella? So my expertise is specifically um, in white nationalism. So I'll start there because that's really more of my wheelhouse. And white nationalism refers to a movement that explicitly says that um, whites in the U.S. should should preserve a demographic supermajority and that non-white immigration is what they call the, the great replacement or white genocide. Um, which you know, they believe that, you know, as whites you know, become a statistical minority in the U.S., this will lead to the destruction of the white race. So that's really core to, you know, to their belief. And you have, you know, figures like Richard Spencer and the alt-right, who everyone is familiar with, who espoused this, um, uh, you know, uh, back in the days of the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. So these, you know, the, the, these figures that you might think of are more uh, on the fringe, but then you have, you know, advisors to President Trump, like S- Stephen Miller or Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. who essentially skirt right up to the edge of outright saying the very same thing. I mean, they talk in terms like we need to preserve Western civilization from third world immigration. And so when you really boil down to it, like what do they mean by Western civilization? Essentially, they mean white European mm-hmm. people, right? So I would, that's really the ideology at the core uh, of white nationalism. Um, and like I said, the anti-Semitism is also very central. Um, and Christian nationalism is not so much my area of expertise, but, you know, uh, but colleagues of mine, such as Fred, uh, Fred Clarkson, have written extensively on the work of movements like the Dominionist movement um, and others who essentially want to, to take over state, uh, state policy to enshrine um, a specifically f- uh, fundamentalist vision of Christianity mm-hmm. you know, t- to become the law of the land. So basically... It's turning the U.S. into a specifically Christian theocratic nation, like doing away with all separation between church and state. Um, and there's a lot of overlap. You know, essentially, you know, these days, most of the folks who believe in white nationalism also believe in Christian nationalism. So they essentially want to to end all non-white immigration. Right. You know, they want to kind of end all immigration You know, to preserve a white demographic majority and to preserve what they call as Western culture, mm-hmm. uh, Western civilization. And they also want to, you know, end um, uh, all abortion, right. Even end contraception. Uh, they obviously, they want, you know, zero rights for trans folks. Um, they want to enshrine a vision uh, where white people, uh, you know, remain structurally dominant in society and where, their their fundamentalist you know theological beliefs um, are enforced upon all of American society. The yeah. movement made great strides during the Trump era. Do you see a failure on the part of the current administration and legislative majorities to take white Christian nationalism seriously and uh, to counter it effectively? Um, yeah, yeah, very broadly speaking. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, President, you know, President Biden said during his campaign that the reason that, that he decided to run for president was because he um, heard the marchers, you know, at Charlottesville at the Unite the Right rally where these white nationalists were in 2017. He heard them uh, chanting, you will not replace us. You Jews will not replace us. You know, uh, and he claims that that was the impetus that inspired him to run for president. So, you know, obviously um, he's claimed the, that this is you know, a priority. Um, and there has been some work, to, you know, done. But ultimately, you know, if the current administration wanted to stop the advance of white, white Christian uh, yeah, nationalism and were serious about it, then we wouldn't be looking at, you know, a reality a few months down the line mm-hmm. uh, where the GOP is poised, according to many analysts, you know, to take, you know, control of the house and, and Senate. We'll, we would be looking at a, um, 
you know, administration and a Democratic Party that had a robust you know, plan already in place to protect Roe v. Wade. We would, in, in my opinion, be looking at a presidency that, you know, was willing to take you know, radical action to um, to get as many Americans, you know, on his side as possible. You know, things like forgetting student loan debt, things like like helping um, helping folks with health care and meeting for substantive ways. I mean, I think we've seen this administration really not um, not delivering on broad promises to you know to the American public, and it's not entirely their fault, but. Um, you know, the, this, this kind of, you know, broadly popular policies are crucial to build a, a united front, you know, against the growth of white Christian nationalism, which is poised to overtake the entire GOP. I mean, mm-hmm. the GOP is the party of Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are coming back to power. Um, and they are very, you know, they've had a long-term plan for many decades at implementing their uh, agenda. Um, and they're very effective. Um, and, you know, the um, last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, t- typically the Biden administration and many administrations, you know, they prefer to deal with the problem of, you know, domestic extremism um, by kind of like amping up the uh, the repressive state apparatus, right? You know, amping up the power of the FBI and the DOJ to violate civil liberties. Um, and that's very dangerous because you know, when that gets into the hands of someone like Donald you know, Trump, these expanded powers of surveillance and violations of, of civil rights uh, can be used against anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm also very skeptical of approaches to combating you know, extremism that rely on, uh, on prisons mm-hmm. and surveillance and criminalization. Ben, going forward, what do our listeners need to be keeping their eyes and ears open for if they value the democracy handed down uh, by the founders? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's obviously very important to keep track of these you know frightening movements on the you know um, on the right, um, but it's you know even more important. To, to get involved with local uh, initiatives um, and social movements to, to, you know, to try to protect our democracy and make the world a better place. You know, go out to, to, to protest for abortion rights this weekend. Like donate, you know, especially to local abortion f- funds um, in states that really need it. Um, get involved... Uh, and support progressive candidates, you know, and beyond the the the, the twenty twenty two midterms and the twenty twenty four presidential election, you know, get involved in um, you know um, in social movements for around the, the issues that you care about. I think you know, the the surest way to combat these things uh, is to increase all of our civic participation and fight against you know the tendency towards apathy or despair, but to really uh, you know, kind of like find your people, find the social movements th- that you care about um, in the, and link up with other people, um, you know, to get involved and take action, you know, because it's kind of that long haul effort of building power and building social movements that's going, uh, you know, t- to protect um, mm-hmm. the foundations of our multiracial democracy. Well, before we go, uh, tell our listeners how they can follow your work and the work of political research associates. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you can go to politicalresearch.org. That's our website. We are a Boston-based think tank that monitors right-wing movements. Um, And you can also follow me um, on Twitter at at my handle is BenLorber8 and the number eight at the end. Ben Lorber is research analyst at Political Research Associates. We'll link to his recent writing on the many tentacle white Christian nationalist movement from stateofbelief.com. Ben, thank you so much for making time and enduring several reschedulings so that we can do this. Uh, we are very pleased to have you on State of Belief Radio. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Keep up your amazing work. 
we're just getting started on this week's show. Up next, Stephen K. Green. His new book is titled Separating Church and State, A History. And later, Interfaith Alliance takes the lead in organizing faith for pride. We'll get details from Maureen O'Leary. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Welton Gaddy. My next guest has just published a book that offers nuanced and considered analysis of an issue that often gets treated as just a blunt object. Of course, the founders wanted to keep church and state completely separate, many of us say. Others insist this country only exists through the grace of God who wanted it to be founded by and for Christians. Dr. Stephen K. Green brings scholarship and dispassionate analysis to the pages of Separating Church and State, a history. And I am pleased, glad, to have him back with us today on State of Belief Radio. Uh, Steve, thank you for joining us. While it's tempting for us to focus on opposing Bartonian efforts to create a foundational link between Christianity and our national identity, I read you as saying part of the problem is a lack of clarity dating back to the founding of the nation. Is that fair to say? You're correct. Um, What I tried to do in the book was to... uh, not necessarily get polemical, but to address this question that some say that uh, we hear this frequently, that separation of church and state is not listed in the Constitution. So consequently, it is a fabricated concept and uh, should not necessarily be adhered to. Um, At the same time, Different surveys reveal that approximately two-thirds to as close as three-quarters of Americans actually believe in some concept of separation of church and state. And so we have this tension that exists uh, within our culture, a tension that exists within the law. What I do in the book is I go back and try to establish the bona fides of the concept of separate spheres. And that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. It goes back to the the Catholic Church battles with uh, the different emperors of of medieval Europe. It certainly has roots in the Reformation. Uh, This idea of separating the two regimes has a very long history and a long tradition. But that can mean many things, because even though uh, Calvin believed in separate spheres, Everybody knows that Geneva was not the most liberal place uh, during his reign, and that certainly Puritans and other Reformed uh, Christians who came out of Calvinism didn't really practice religious tolerance, let alone religious freedom. So it can mean many things to many people. Was it a lack of clarity in the writing itself or a lack of agreement among the founders that left us in this situation? I think there was a fundamental level of agreement among the founders. Um, They had experienced 150 years of repressive um, church establishments. Uh, Now, in New England, they believed that their religious establishment was not, not anywhere as bad as the religious establishment in the southern colonies, which was the Church of England. But at the same time, they were very restrictive. And there's one thing that uh, I think was a pretty consistent trend is that we need to disentangle the realms of government from the power of the church. I mean, what I say in this book, and I've said many times in other contexts, is one thing we have to acknowledge, and I don't think can be refuted, is a phenomenal sea change occurred within a very short period of time. In 1776, at the time of uh, the Declaration of Independence, 
the time that Congress invited states to form themselves as states. Out of the 13 new states, nine of them had some form of religious establishment. Within a short 10 years, at the cusp of the writing of the Constitution, that number had switched. You now had 10 states, because now you had Vermont, 10 states that had disestablished, and four states that were retaining some type of establishment, but they were on the defensive. They didn't even want to call what they had as religious establishments. So there's a fair degree of consensus Mm. on that level. Where the consensus, I think, broke down is what does that mean beyond these formal, technical, legal establishments of religion, of preferential treatment for some religion over others? And there was a variety of of ideas and concepts out there. Where did the idea itself originate? Was was it a King George thing or something more philosophical than that? Well, I think for the founders, and and, and, um, I've been accused of being a Whig historian, which that means you kind of glorify the founding sometimes. And I actually think we were extremely fortunate, notwithstanding the the limitations and the uh, tunnel vision that many of the founders had with respect to inclusion of people of color or women within within the, the political construct. Still, they were highly educated. They knew their history. And they relied extensively on uh, Enlightenment and Whig scholars from the latter part of the 17th century, early 18th century. John Locke was probably the most influential philosopher for the founding generation. And he wrote extensively about separate spheres, about keeping the two apart, and that government had no business in trying to make people to be religious because it violated rights of conscience. And that was an extremely powerful theme that resonated throughout the founding period. And it wasn't just Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, the people we hold out, who who followed Locke. Um, uh, I I have a four, three-volume set of sermons from the founding period. And you go and you see these sermons during the Revolutionary War of these Calvinist ministers, and they're quoting John Locke as being the be-all and end-all when it comes to this idea of natural rights and and keeping government out of religious affairs. So long story short, there was a fair degree of consensus that establishments were wrong and the government should stay out of religious business. Mm. And so within that, you had a variety of of opinions on how far that goes one direction or the other. So could they have done it better Considering all the pressures and disagreements um, in play, did, did any of the founders anticipate the challenges that we are facing today? No, not at all. Um, I, I, I've just finished a, um, a draft monograph of my next book, which is a dual biography of Jefferson and Madison on religious freedom. And, and you look at that and what, you come away from it. And one thing I think is they did a pretty damn good job mm-hmm. with what they had, with the headwinds that they were facing. Second, uh, to quote uh, Justice Felix Frankfurt from the 1940s, he called separation of church and state a spacious conception. And what he meant by that, it was a conception that would grow, that would evolve over time and encompass things that the founders had not necessarily considered at that period of time. And, and, and in this new book I've, I've been working on, I've probably read at least two to 300 letters, correspondence back between Madison and Jefferson over many years of their collaboration. And you can see clearly within at least their conception that they had not arrived at the perfect formula that this was a work in progress. And not to get off on a different issue, but this is one of the things that really bothers me about uh, original meaning originalists like Justice Scalia and some of the justices are on the Supreme Court today. They believe they can go back and kind of freeze in time the meaning of certain constitutional phrases and principles and then extrapolate those to the future. And you go back and look, and I don't think there are any in the founding period, not just Jefferson and Madison, who believed in freezing these things in time. They believed it was a evolving constitution. What's the um, confusion between the wall metaphor uh, and uh, the establishment clause? Is there real ambiguity there? 
Well, interestingly enough, um, Thomas Jefferson, who we give credit to at least familiarizing us with this wall of separation between church and state from his 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptists, um, he only used that metaphor that one time, so far as we can know. Even though the Supreme Court picked up on that in uh, 1789 and then again in 1947. Uh, But you can see in his writings that he at least reaffirms there needs to be some kind of strong line, some boundary Mm -hmm. that does separate the spheres. And we have to see James Madison, even though he never uses the exact phrase wall of separation, he uses other phrases, barrier, line, etc., and he talks more about church-state separation in his later writings than actually Thomas Jefferson does using that phrase. Mm-hmm. So I think actually the wall metaphor has been a distraction. In, in a previous book, when I was uh, looking at more of the 1940s and 1950s, I went uh, to the Library of Congress and went through all the papers and early drafts of these opinions by the Supreme Court justices. And in the initial drafts of the 1947 opinion, when Justice Black resurrects this wall metaphor, it's not in his earlier drafts. Hmm. He actually kind of added it at the last minute in response to Justice Wiley Rutledge's dissenting opinions. And he beefed up his majority opinion and used the wall metaphor. Um, I'm not saying it's it's a throwaway line, Mm -hmm. but it just wasn't as necessary for the underlying principle. What has happened, though, is religious conservatives and political conservatives has seized upon this and actually elevated this idea of a impenetrable wall in a way that I don't think Jefferson or Madison ever intended the language to mean. Looking at it from a modern perspective, what are the most important things that we need to know about the uh, actual intent of the founders of this issue? Well, again, I think the most thing we need to bear in mind is that they agreed on certain fundamental principles about the rights of conscience. And actually, they believed that these were natural rights, not necessarily God-given rights in the way some people misconstrue when we talk about natural rights theories. They believed that religious equality was a fundamental principle. And that was a hard one back then, Mm -hmm. to actually promote that. But most of them believed that religious equality was necessary. They wanted to avoid religious dissension, something that Justice Breyer has talked a lot about in his opinion. So that's a, that was an extremely potent theme in the founding period that we need to relieve because that had been the source. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about close to 250 years ago. And in the recent memory, so to speak, mm-hmm. of the founders were the wars of religion. Those were within the within their grandfathers, grandparents' memories. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, religious dissension was a really big thing for them. Mm-hmm. And then forced support of someone else's religion through forced taxation. Those were all things that almost everybody agreed upon mm-hmm. during that time. So in that sense, I think we can go back and look at these kind of general principles yeah. and use those today. What I'm concerned about is what uh, Justice Alito and some of the more uh, conservatives on the Supreme Court are doing is they're going back and kind of cherry picking history. I I think it's highly disappointing. It's highly destructive to our constitutional heritage to do this. I think it is in many ways politically driven that separation of church and state has become like other legal concepts. It's become almost a partisan idea, whereas it was not something Republicans supported separation of church and state up until recently. Uh, Baptists supported separation of church and state up until recently. And so I find that highly troubling that it has become this kind of divisive issue. Uh, As a law professor and a lawyer, as well as a historian, what I find also very perplexing is the conservative members of the Supreme Court are attacking separation of church and state like it was forced upon them by some alien force instead of it being a concept that they embraced 50 years ago and less than 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so in, in that sense, it's, it's, it's very distressing to see the, yeah. the, the attacks on this concept. Yeah. And then more specifically, how they're going about and kind of uh, just changing core jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. I mean, throughout most of the history, this idea that you don't fund religion was mandated by the Establishment Clause. Recently, within the last five years, the Supreme Court has said, 
if you don't fund religion, then you're discriminating against religion. You're showing hostility toward religion. And the Establishment Clause doesn't stand, I shouldn't bar that. And so they're kind of turning the world upside down yeah. on some of these fundamental ideas that we have. Steve, I wonder if we might lean on your expertise in helping us think about a uh, current hot topic. Uh, the Supreme Court is considering the issue of prayer at public school sporting events. You've argued a number of cases before the high court yourself, including one in 2000 that resulted in a ban on just this kind of school-sanctioned prayer. So you're the perfect person to ask why the issue is so important, how the justices got it right back then, and what's at stake today uh, in Bremerton. Yeah, this is about a football coach in Bremerton High School outside Seattle who has insisted that he has a protected right uh, at the conclusion of a football game when it is still clearly a school-sponsored event to go on the football field and pray and to invite anyone who wants to, which basically means all of his teammates, to come on and pray with him on the middle of the football field. If you and I were at that game and we rushed onto the football field at the end of the game, the police would drag us off the field. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Kennedy is not going onto the football field in the capacity as a private citizen. He's going on the capacity that he is there as a coach, which is a public employee. And so he's engaging in very demonstrative religious activity. It would be like my uh, seventh grade daughter's teacher in one of her classes saying, oh, I'm going to all of a sudden stand up and pray and read the Bible out loud to you, a captive audience. And I have a free exercise right to do it there and then. And if you say the Establishment Clause prohibits that, you're discriminating against me. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt, this is turning the 1962 and 1963 school prayer cases on their head. Yeah. A football coach, more than probably any teacher, is someone who the students will look up to, who has subtle coercive authority over the students. So consequently, to say that there's nothing else going on here, all I'm doing is praying, and I have a right to do that. Again, I, it, I don't think it even it, – it doesn't pay any respect to the facts. And what else does uh, a likely ruling against the uh, district open the door to uh, going forward? Well, I think it opens the door to certainly more religious activity in public schools where you have students who, uh, again, are very impressionable. There's a lot of peer pressure to participate in in these activities Uh, that uh, you tell me where the line is between demonstrative prayer and then proselytizing. I don't know where that line is. And so it's going to be very hard to start making these fine distinctions once you kind of open the door and say that teachers have these rights. The other thing I'm concerned about, it becomes very majoritarian that we have an increasingly religious diversity within this country. More and more Muslim students, students of Asian religions, right? How are they going to feel when their role models, their teachers are now engaging in, and to be honest, let's let's call it what it is. The people who are going to do it are going to be evangelical Christians. It's not going to be a a wide variety of, of religion being practiced outwardly in public schools by public school employees. With the uh, religious right and some groups of of religious people decided that they weren't getting anywhere by trying to talk about uh, religious freedom with other people, they just defined it again. It's not like what's in what we see as religious freedom. They just redefined it. How are we ever going to get people to understand what religious freedom is? And that's why I want to ask you, how do you define religious freedom? I actually use these words very technically. Um, I do normally not use the word religious liberty because I see that being as more of a kind of a personal right. I have the liberty interest to keep you from imposing your values or whatever on me, right? 
religious freedom in my mind is a larger concept that includes not only religious liberty, the right to practice your religion free from government coercion, etc. It's a condition. It's a state mm. of being. It is, it is the way society operates. And religious freedom means religious equality, means religious respect, right? It means freedom of conscience. And it means, again, separation of church and state. All of that, in my mind, is under the umbrella of religious freedom. What I fear has happened is that religious conservatives are taking the term religious freedom and giving the most narrow version of that. And they're jettisoning from this idea of religious freedom, religious respect, religious toleration for others. Mm -hmm. And so it's religious freedom for me. But when it comes to other concerns, other values, and even non-religious values, like respect for LGBTQ community, right? For Mm -hmm. non-discrimination laws, all of those become secondary to my religious freedom, very narrowly defined. Dr. Stephen K. Green is professor of law, director of the Center for Religion, Law, and Democracy, and uh, affiliated professor of history and religious studies at uh, Williamette University in Salem, Oregon. His important past books include Inventing a Christian America, The Myth of the Religious Founding, Dr. Green's latest is uh, titled Separating Church and State, a History, just published by Cornell University Press. Steve, thank you for taking this important topic on and for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. You're always welcome with your insights. Thank you. My pleasure. The data is clear. Most people of faith in this country are committed to fairness and inclusivity for all, including their LGBTQI plus friends and neighbors. But anti-gay propagandists continue to promote the lie that all religion condemns diversity of expression and affection. That's why the Faith for Equality Coalition brings together a variety of activists and advocates from many different backgrounds to amplify the truth on this life-and-death issue. And with June, uh, traditionally observed as Pride Month, almost here, an inclusivity campaign from the coalition called Faith for Pride is getting a lot of attention. Here with details is Interfaith Alliance Director of Field and Organizing, Maureen O'Leary. Maureen, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. What is the Faith for Equality Coalition, and why is Interfaith Alliance uh, taking a leading role? Faith for Equality is a coalition of 120 plus religious groups that support LGBTQ dignity. Interfaith Alliance is among them. Um, We're united by our support for the Equality Act, which is a bill that strengthens existing civil rights protections um, for LGBTQ people and others. It provides consistent non-discrimination protection for people nationwide, including in employment, housing, education, public spaces, um, and a variety of other forums. So Faith of Pride goes across all of the things that you were mentioning? Yes. So this intersects with Um, some data that you mentioned that was released by the Public Religion Research Institute Mm -hmm. that demonstrates that 69% of people of faith support non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ plus people. This is counter to the narrative that's told by the religious right. You know, it's painted as religion versus non-discrimination, religious versus progress and equality. And that's just not the case. That's not what the data tells us. So this Pride Month, um, Faith for Equality Coalition is launching Faith for Pride. And this effort 
um, is encouraging congregations, different religious groups to include the message of LGBTQ equality, include the fight for LGBTQ rights in their services and programs. Um, we're fighting back. We're lifting up the message that as people of faith, we support um, treating our LGBTQ brothers and sisters with dignity and respect. And um, more specifically, we are highlighting faith support for the Equality Act, um, which will give concrete protections to people that stand to be harmed by discrimination, most often religiously motivated discrimination, which just adds a new uh, troubling layer to the whole thing. I want to be sure our uh, listeners understand. Would you just say why this is so important? In the absence of a counter narrative, the dominant narrative is allowed to stand. You know, unless religious communities and religious groups are standing up and saying, no, you know, we support LGBTQ rights. You know, this this isn't the story that we want to tell as people of faith. Then it's that narrative of, you know, religion versus equality, religion versus inclusion that is going to stand. So now more than ever, it's critical that we speak out because we are going to see it state by state. Um, Legislatures are targeting um, people that uh, already suffer from discrimination. So we have to um, be proactive in this fight instead of reactive. Maureen, what kind of participation have you seen so far? We have people that are engaging online. We have people signing up um, with events, whether it's uh, Shabbat or, you know, your Sunday service, that you're including um, the message of LGBTQ equality in, you know, your sermon. There are a variety of ways for people to engage. Um, We are really encouraging people to um, sign up and register an event. Um, There's a place to do that on our website. Um, We will put your event out there, encourage people to come. You know, we want this to be uh, a nationwide movement of people raising awareness of how essential it is that people of faith speak out in support of LGBTQ rights. What what, uh, resources is the coalition offering for faith communities that want to be a part of this? We're gathering uh, guides, resources, talking points. Um, some of them are general um, and more interfaith and focused, but some of them are really specific to um, individual religious traditions. You know, we're building that link between how our faith um, or how you know our religion informs our uh, views on non-discrimination, how it motivates us to support. Um, the dignity and worth of every person, regardless of who they are, what they believe, how they identify. Um, Those resources are available on our website. You know, if you're feeling like, I really want to get involved, but I don't know where to begin, um, those can help guide you um, on that path. So I I want you to just, if you're talking with anybody all along that you know and care for, what would you say is uh, most important uh, about this campaign uh, for you and why it is that way? I think it goes back um, to what I mentioned before of if we don't speak out, other people will speak for us. You know, people of uh, people that are using religion as a cover to discriminate or to cause harm to people will be able to write the story. Mm-hmm. Um, now is our opportunity to write our own story, to send our own message and to say, this is a relevant issue. This is important to us because there are people in our communities and without that are going to suffer if we don't all join together and support laws and measures that will protect people in all the areas I mentioned, mm-hmm. housing, healthcare, mm-hmm. um, these essential services that people need in order to live happy and fulfill, happy, healthy, and fulfilling lives. So the stakes are very high, but you can do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's the biggest sure. component of 
it's it seems like a daunting task, but if enough people, you know, uh, speak out, uh, then we become a larger moral chorus that can change the trajectory um, of where we are going um, in the legislatures. How can folks join in and how can they share faith of pride with other people? Please visit our website. Um, it's faithforpride.org. There you can find resources. You can register as a co-sponsor if you're an organization or a congregation that wants to help us spread the word. Um, you can also register your event. And this is something I really want to encourage congregations to do. If you're a lay person or a member, please take it to your leadership and say, hey, this is something I think we should do. Once you have a plan, register your event. We'll put it on our website. And if you don't have an event that your particular group is doing, or if you know you aren't affiliated with a particular religion, religion or group and still want to get involved, we'll have those events. Um, we have them listed state by state. So check out your area, see what's happening near you and show up and show out um, for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters um, during Pride Month. Arena O'Leary is Director of Field and Organizing at Interfaith Alliance, protecting true religious freedom for all. Find out more about joining the Faith for Pride campaign at www.faithforpride.org. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we are going to ask you how it's going along because we are interested in it and want everybody to know about it. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be a part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then... You all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy, that state of belief. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See, he was, he was.